Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Through chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. As usual, if you didn't bring a Bible, forgot your Bible, feel free to use one of those. Uh, page 492 is where the passage appears in the paperback Bibles. Uh, it is uh, <clears throat> generally agreed that for any organization to succeed, that one of the most important things that needs to be in place is strong leadership. And that is true for companies, it's true for sports teams, and it's true for churches. And so, as Pastor Brian mentioned just a moment ago, uh, we are going to be installing two new men to the office of deacon uh, near the end of the service today. And one of the things that I want to remind us of today as we think about leadership is that it's very important to remember that um, even if a person is a a leader, a a deacon or an elder or, or even a pastor in a church, that that never excuses that person from the responsibility to be a disciple. At the root, all of us who call ourselves Christians are disciples, and that uh, is applicable from the least to the greatest in the church, to those who are not serving, to those who are leading. We're all disciples. I've been reading a biography of Ulysses Grant lately, Grant, uh, the great Civil War general for the North, and I took notice of the fact that apparently Grant did not dress in the kind of fancy garb that other generals would dress in, that it was hard to distinguish him, at least by appearance, from those who were beneath him, from his officers. So for Grant, even though he was a general, he never forgot that he was a soldier at root. And The same goes for leaders in the church. Deacons, elders, pastors must always remember we are still disciples. So, what does the Scripture say about what it is to be a disciple? Um, A disciple of Jesus is, at its most basic level, a learner, a, a student, a follower. But to be a disciple also involves a certain frame of mind, kind of an, an outlook, an attitude toward life a posture that we are to retain through all of life, and it is basically a posture of self-denial, an attitude of self-denial. This applies to all Christians, but especially to those who serve as leaders in the church. So as we're going through this book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, we've been doing this for several months, just going through it one passage at a time. Um, we are at a very crucial transition point in the book of Mark. As I mentioned the last couple of Sundays, the first half of Mark, first eight chapters, is about Jesus' identity. The next eight chapters in Mark are basically about Jesus' mission. First half of Mark, about who Jesus is. Second half of Mark is about what Jesus came to do. So we're about to transition into that portion of this gospel, but another major theme of the book of Mark is discipleship. In almost every single passage in Mark, the disciples are present, and and Jesus is interacting with His disciples, and that's the case right here in this passage in chapter 8, 
Um, you might remember last week, Jesus announced this very startling reality, which is that He has come to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to rise again. And He said that to, to Peter, and Peter didn't like that, and Peter rebuked Him for that, but, but now we're kind of moving on to that, and it's like Jesus is saying to, to His disciples in the text here today, but He's also saying this to all who would call themselves disciples. He's saying something like this, if I have lived a life of self-denial, you will too. If I have lived a life of suffering, you will too. That this is what characterizes the lives of disciples of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is going to expand upon now in these verses that follow. Uh, Friends, this is not an easy message. Okay? This is not going to be the feel-good message of the year. <laughs> uh, but this is what Jesus has said. He said it to His disciples then, He says it to us now. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Mark 8, 34 through 9, 1. And He, Jesus, called to Him the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after Me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, being a disciple involves a lot in terms of what we, what we do. We, we come to church, we read the Bible, we, we pray, we serve one another. That's all part of being a disciple. But again, what we're talking about here today is, is the posture, the outlook, the kind of attitude the way we view the world that should characterize all disciples. And so the first thing I want to show you is that a disciple, uh, of how a disciple of Jesus views himself, okay? How, how does a disciple of Jesus regard himself or herself? So here's how the passage begins here in verse 34. We see Jesus has called to him, not just his disciples, you might notice, the crowd as well, along with his disciples. So Uh, Jesus apparently wants everybody to hear this, whether they are His disciples or not. And then He says, verse 34 again, if anyone would come after Me, there is a nice simple definition of what it is to be a disciple, those who come after Him, those who follow Him, if anyone would come after Me, let him, first of all, let him deny himself. If anybody is to be a disciple of Jesus, that person must be in the habit of denying yourself. Now, let me just begin by 
talking about what that doesn't mean. Denying yourself doesn't mean that you hate yourself. Denying yourself doesn't mean that you punish yourself. Denying yourself does not mean that you have to refuse any kind of benefit that would come to you in this life. When you're done working and you get the paycheck, you don't have to say, no, sorry, I can't receive that paycheck. Jesus calls me to deny myself. Somebody gives you a, a Christmas gift. No, I can receive no gifts because Jesus called me to deny myself. That, that, that's, not, that's not what Jesus has in mind here. He also is not telling us to deny ourselves in the sense that if we deny ourselves in some kind of an extreme way that we can merit salvation or get God's attention by how radical we are in our self-denial. There are many stories of people who will deprive themselves of sleep or go off into the wilderness for weeks fast for, for, for weeks or months or tie themselves to poles and put themselves in all sorts of awkward and uncomfortable and painful situations as a way of denying themselves pleasure and comfort. And in some people's minds, these are all efforts to get God's attention, to earn salvation. That also is not what Jesus is saying. When he says that we should deny ourselves He's talking about actually something that's harder than all of those things. What he's saying is to deny yourself, it is to refuse to regard yourself as your chief interest, your supreme passion, or the dominant element in your life. To deny yourself is not to regard yourself at the center of everything. If your life could be compared to a solar system. To deny yourself is to realize you are not the sun around which all the planets revolve. You are not the person around which all other people revolve. To deny yourself is to enter into a regular habit of self-forgetfulness, not being consumed with yourself, not always thinking of your interests. This is self-denial. And this is not just something for the more advanced Christians, Matthew Henry says, the first lesson in Christ's school is self-denial. To, to deny yourself is to realize that it is not your right to just spend your money however you wish. To deny yourself is to not get revenge against the person who has wronged you. To deny yourself is not to demand the right to freely express your sexuality in a way that brings you maximum fulfillment. To deny yourself is not to win all the arguments and always get the last word. To deny yourself is not to demand to always be in control. To deny yourself is not to seek to get the credit and praise and adoration that you feel you deserve or you crave. A life of self-denial rejects all of those very worldly attitudes. And Martin Luther, I think, put it really well where he says, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Self-denial, denial, making yourself nothing. Now, that, that's, that's a big of enough challenge, I think, for all of us. I think we can all identify with the struggle. I certainly can. This is not something that comes easy 
to me. But then Jesus goes on here at the second part of verse 34, and he actually turns up the heat a little bit, takes it a step further, and says, not only should one deny himself, but also take up his cross and follow me. To be a disciple is to take up one's cross and follow Jesus. What is a cross? A cross is an instrument of execution. A cross is a symbol of shame and cruelty and death and suffering. An instrument used primarily by the Romans in in Jesus' day to execute criminals. So when Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow me, Sounds a little archaic to us, perhaps, but it was a common method of execution then. People would have taken that literally and would have thought what Jesus meant. What He did mean, to some degree, is that to follow Jesus, you need to be prepared to get that piece of wood on which you will be killed and put it on your back and take it out to the place of your execution. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if you're going to be my disciple and you're going to follow me, it might require your life. And I don't think we can really overly spiritualize this to suggest that it might just mean the denial of things that we want, although we might push it there. But what Jesus has in mind here is something a little more literal because This was probably written during the time of Nero's reign when there was a lot of persecution, a lot of Christians were dying, and some of them were dying on crosses. Tradition tells us that Peter, the one to whom Jesus is speaking here, one among many, Peter was executed on a cross, and according to his own request, he was hanging upside down on a cross. This would have been a common experience for Christians in Jesus' day. So I don't think we can look at this, and, and I think we have to be careful about trivializing this, you know? I mean, sometimes we might say, well, I got a really irritating brother or sister, but boy, I got to carry my cross. Or my, I just don't get along with my boss at work, but I, well, I'm going to carry my cross. Or I'm going to deny myself chocolate during Lent and carry my cross. I think what Jesus is talking about here is something, something a little more a little more serious, the possibility of your life being required of you as you follow Jesus. Are you ready to give up your life for Him? I don't say that to you as the one who stands up here and says, oh boy, I know I'd be ready to. I mean, I would certainly hope in that moment that the Holy Spirit would give me the strength to give up my life for Jesus. But it's clear that this is what Jesus is calling Christians to be ready to do. This isn't a promise that this is going to happen to everybody, right? I mean, we know there's plenty of Christians who have lived and died in this world and didn't die on a cross. That's true. But again, we're talking about the attitude of a disciple. In your heart, are you you ready for that? Maybe you've seen this uh, ad, a guy named Ernest Shackleton. He was an Irish explorer back in the late 1800s explored um, Antarctica, and uh, it's questionable whether this really happened, but still serves the point of the illustration. Uh, The ad that he apparently put in some kind of 
newspaper, men wanted for hazardous journeys, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. There were men who followed that call. There were men willing to die for Ernest Shackleton. Are you willing to die for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Jesus says to be a disciple, we need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared to give up our life. That's how a disciple should view himself, hold to your life loosely. But the second thing that Jesus discusses here is how a disciple should view the world. So we move on to verse 35. Jesus kind of expands a little more on this self-denial attitude. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. It's this paradox. We have a lot of paradoxes in the Scriptures. Um, to go up, you've got to go down. If you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to lose your life, to save it. And that's what Jesus is declaring here in this verse, 35. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. The one who loses his life will save it. Now, notice here that it's not just for any particular cause that Jesus mentions the loss of life. It's losing your life, he says, for my sake and for the gospel. It's that particular cause that's in view here. That the way to gain your life is to be willing to lose your life in service to Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. There's this, again, paradox, this irony here where the more we seek to value and exalt ourselves, the more we seek to save our lives, the more we seek to advance ourselves and get the glory and be the center of all attention, the more we entirely miss the point. That's the paradox. The more you want to protect yourself, the more you lose yourself. If you can imagine having um, a handful of sand, and let's say you don't want to lose even one grain of that sand, and so the temptation is in order to protect that sand in your hand, you want to grip it. You want to hold it more tightly, but the more tightly you hold onto that sand, the more you lose because you're squeezing it out from between your fingers, and that's an illustration of that temptation we have to want to hold on to our things for our own sake, what Jesus says is that's the sure way to lose your life. So C.S. Lewis has said it this way, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Just something about just being so self-centered and turned in on ourselves, we never find the satisfaction and fulfillment that we think we're going to get. That's what Jesus is saying here. But then he, he moves on, verse 36, you see that word for, so that word for is connecting verse 36 to verse 35, so he's elaborating on this more, and he begins to talk about the Christian's relationship with the world. And he begins using kind of economic language here. He says, what does it profit a man? He says, what kind of profit does a person 
get if that person gains the whole world and then loses his life or soul, depending on what your translation says. Uh, some ESVs actually say soul, some say life. For what can a man give in return for his life or for his soul? The, the idea here is that if you gain the whole world, if you gain everything that you've dreamed about and are passionate about in the world, but you have to pay for it with your soul, you have just gotten ripped off. It's a bad deal. Uh, it would be something like if you had a 2023 BMW and you went and you traded it in for a 73 Chevy Vega people would say, that's a bad deal. It, you, you just got ripped off. And, and Jesus is saying it's, it's the very same thing here. If you have to, if your soul has to be the currency by which you purchase all of the blessings and comforts of this world, it's, it's a bad deal. You, you, have been, you have been ripped off. That is not something that should drive the way a disciple of Jesus lives in this world. Now, again, clarifying, this does not mean a total withdrawal from the world, right? Jesus says, be in the world, not of it. This is not a prohibition against getting a good education. It's not a prohibition against seeking a promotion at work. It's not a pro prohibition against being a better musician or a, a better athlete or getting involved in politics. It's not a total withdrawal from the word, world. The warning that Jesus is, is giving us here is that it is possible for us to spend so much time in pursuit of worldly attractions that we have no time to care for our soul and our soul gets starved and it withers on the vine because of our commitment to worldly success and pleasures. Right? Remember the parable of the farmer and the seed, right? Jesus is talking about the seed. The seed is the word. The seed goes out and it's dropped on many different kinds of soil. And there's one ground called the thorns. And Jesus says the seed falls among the thorns and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And that's what Jesus is warning against here too. Your drive, your passion for success and pleasure, and comfort, and prestige, and power, and wealth, and money can very easily choke the Word. At the end of your life, if you have everything you've ever dreamed of, and you have all these things that I have mentioned, and you have the condo on the beach, and you've experimented with every sexual pleasure that you have wanted, and you have a great reputation, you have people adoring you, you're famous, you have everything you want, but your soul is withered on the vine, friends, you are bankrupt at that moment. But let's say at the end of your life you have nothing. You're living in a trailer somewhere. You have hardly anything to your name, and nobody knows who you are, but you have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus. You are wealthy in the eyes of God. That's the point that Jesus here is making. We hear a lot about the church in China. We hear about the persecution that's going on there. And um, it's getting worse and has been getting worse for the last couple of years as there have been tighter restrictions on the church in China. But when you hear people from China talk about this, pastors and leaders in the church and observers of the church in China, 
what they will say is that persecution is not their chief concern. I mean, they, they don't talk about persecution. We talk about persecution in China a lot, but the Chinese church doesn't really talk about it that much because they don't see the persecution as a problem. They see materialism as a problem. That's their biggest concern, that there are Chinese Christians who are trying to gain the world at the expense of their soul. So friends, what is, what is of greater importance to you? The way you spend your time, the way you set forth your plans. Does it reflect a desire to gain the world? Does it reflect a desire to have a healthy soul? Remember what the prophet Jeremiah said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's the greatest privilege, to understand and know God through Jesus, the Savior. So, how a disciple of Jesus views the world, one other thing here to consider is how a disciple of Jesus views others. And by this in particular, I mean how we are influenced and controlled by the opinions of other people. And there are many warnings in Scripture against falling into this trap. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. <laughs> Referring to the Old Testament, false prophets got a lot of attention and adoration. The true prophets were hated, despised, rejected, sometimes killed. John chapter 12, there's another uh, description of a conversation Jesus is having with uh, Jews at the time, and uh, the comment that John makes is that they were more interested in the glory that came from man than the glory that came from God. So it's a temptation that we all have. We want to be liked. We want to be uh, approved. We want to be affirmed. But here's another aspect of Christian discipleship in verse 38 that Jesus tells us about. He says this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus here mentions an adulterous and and sinful generation that is a, a time of widespread rejection and rebellion against God. That was true in, in Jesus' day and In many respects, it's true in this day. And so the question or the challenge is this, is that in this environment, how will you respond when you are called upon to talk about Jesus? When the conversation that you're in turns toward the subject of Jesus and His words, do you notice how Jesus said that? Who is ashamed, it says, of uh, me and my words. Where are Jesus' words? They're in the Bible. Another way to say this is those who are ashamed of me and the Bible. When that topic comes up, you know know what it's like. You're having dinner with family, you're at work, you're in the neighborhood, somebody starts bringing up some controversial issues, and you think, here is the wide open door for me to talk about Jesus. What do you do? do? Do you enter into that, or do you retreat? Do you engage or do you change the subject? 
Because you, you, you don't want to be known as one of those fundamentalist Christians. You don't want to be known as the narrow-minded one. You don't want to be known as one who's intolerant. You don't want to be known as one who is hateful and bigoted. The pressure to be quiet about Jesus seems to be greater in our culture now than it has been in a very, very long time. Maybe you heard the story about Tony Dungy from this past week. Tony Dungy, NFL football coach, former coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He stepped out and was a main speaker at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. Now, if you know anything about Tony Dungy, you know that this is one of the, the gentlest, kindest men that you can know about. He's a man known for integrity and honesty. Um, nobody has a bad word to say about Tony Dungy. He's known to be a Christian. And so here he is at the March for Life, speaking about the sanctity of life, speaking about the power of prayer. And as a result of that, he gets hammered in the media. He was called a right-wing extremist and an anti-gay bigot even though he never said anything, as far as I know, about LGBT issues in the speech. But that's the feedback, that's the ridicule that he received. If Tony Dungy gets that kind of criticism, you better be ready that you might get that kind of criticism as well. Are you ready for the ridicule that you might take for being one who claims the name of Jesus? That's what Jesus is warning against here. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. I mean, friends, think about that. Isn't it much better that you suffer the shame of your friends and co-workers and family members than to deal with the shame that could come from Jesus himself because you wouldn't open your mouth in his defense? It's a startling warning. We all, again, want to be liked. It's hard to open our mouths. Some of us are more introverted than others. This is not an easy thing. But there's a warning here that we need to be more concerned about approval from Jesus than approval from others. Now, that's pretty much the text. And having heard all that, you might be saying, man, I don't know if I even want to be a Christian now. That sounds like a, a hard life. Well, I, I'll tell you this. Let me kind of sum it up th this way. I, I want you to know, becoming a Christian is actually really easy. Becoming a Christian is, is simply receiving what Jesus offers to you. Becoming a Christian is not working and denying yourself and carrying your cross so that God will be pleased with you. Do not misunderstand that at all. Becoming a Christian is a simple act of faith. It's just saying, yes, Jesus, I take you. I receive you. I believe in you. Becoming a Christian is easy. Following Jesus is not always so easy. Following Jesus can be difficult, especially when we live in an adulterous and sinful generation. But, but let's not overlook, friends, if we go back to verse 31, when Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he explains these things that are going to happen. He says, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected. He says, I'm going to be killed. But let's not forget what he says next. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. 
you know, that, that's what Peter and the disciples missed, right? I mean, after the resurrection, it's like they, they didn't even expect that Jesus would be risen again. They just totally overlooked that, and we can too. I mean, this is a passage that's pretty heavy with some severe warnings, but that's, let's not overlook the good news here that Jesus is going to rise again. And of course, that's exactly what He did. And so if you look to verse 1 of chapter 9, He says this, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What He's saying here is He's speaking to the disciples. He's saying, you disciples are going to see something wonderful. There's a lot of different interpretations of this verse. I'm not going to get into all the options here, but it seems like what Jesus is saying here is that there are some standing here right now who are not t- taste death. That is, they are going to survive long enough to see this. And what they're going to see is the kingdom of God coming with power. Now, what is it that the disciples saw before they died that would reflect that? And wouldn't that be the death of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection from the dead and His ascension to the right hand of the Father and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church? That's the kingdom of God coming in power. And what Jesus is saying, I've told you you've got to deny yourself, I've told you you've got to carry your cross, but that's what you're going to see. You're going to see the kingdom come in this way. And the disciples, many of them, they saw it with their eyes. And you and I, see it with the eyes of faith. And we receive it, we know it, because the Scriptures tell us that this has happened, that the kingdom of God has come, that Jesus did rise from the dead. He did come out of the tomb. He did conquer the devil, sin, and evil. And that assures us that as we deny ourselves and carry our cross, that ultimately the victory is ours. That we will save our lives, not through our self-denial, but because Jesus denied Himself in going to the cross. And at that time, it will all be worth it. And we will rejoice around the throne of Jesus for all eternity. And we will know that all those who carry the cross will one day wear the crown. That's the promise that we have. So, we need one another to do this, right? To live as disciples and to live as leaders in the church. And so, we're going to get ready to sing. We'll bring Jason and Michael up, if they still want to serve as deacons, that is, after that. (laughs) But the Lord is faithful, and He will complete what He has started in us. We know that. So, let's pray. God, thank You so much for your faithfulness, your kindness, your, your love. Thank you that, that you have suffered and died for us, that you denied yourself for us. And so let that be uppermost in our minds and hearts, Father, that we might live in a way that pleases you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.